University of Chicago Public Policy Podcast. I have therefore considered it essential to relieve General MacArthur so that there would be no doubt or confusion as to the real purpose and aim of our policy. On my orders, the United States military has begun strikes against Al-Qaeda terrorist training camps. We must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence by the military-industrial complex. U.S. warships and planes launched the opening salvo of Operation Iraqi Freedom. After years of devastating cuts, we're now rebuilding our military like we never have before. Welcome back to Thank You for Your Service, a hard look at American civil military affairs from the University of Chicago Public Policy Podcast Organization. I'm Nick Pareso. And I'm Thomas Krasnation. Today, we're really excited to bring you an interview we recorded last week with the woman who literally wrote the book on American civil military affairs. She's one of the most knowledgeable and experienced people working in the international affairs field today. Yeah, Nick, this is really cool for us, and we absolutely couldn't have asked for a more qualified scholar to be our first guest on the show. Dr. Corey Shockey is a longtime foreign policy and national security analyst who is widely recognized as one of the foremost experts on American civil military affairs. Her commentary is regularly featured in Foreign Policy Magazine, The Atlantic, War on the Rocks, and various other media outlets and academic journals. Dr. Shockey has held government positions at the Pentagon, the National Security Council, and the State Department, and served as senior policy advisor to the McCain-Palin presidential campaign in 2008. She has also taught at Johns Hopkins, the University of Maryland, the National Defense University, and the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. Her most recent academic post was a research fellowship at Stanford University's Hoover Institution, where, Alongside current Secretary of Defense James Mattis, she conducted an in-depth study of the current state of civil-military relations in America. That project resulted in the book Warriors and Citizens, American Views of Our Military, which she co-edited with General Mattis. Dr. Shockey is currently serving as the Deputy Director General of the International Institute for Strategic Studies, a research organization based in London and we are really grateful that she made space in her incredibly busy schedule to speak with us last week. Dr. Corey Shockey, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate you taking the time. It is a great pleasure. Dr. Shockey, uh, as you know, we're talking to you from the University of Chicago, Harris School of Public Policy, where most of the student body is interested in pursuing some kind of public service as a career. You've spent your career working at levels of our government and of academia, that many public policy students aspire to. Could you describe your career path for us? Uh, specifically, what motivated you to start researching military and national security policy? Uh, you know, I was kind of a dreamy, impractical kid. And I imagined myself writing a PhD on the renaissance of the Latin American novel in the 1970s and what it tells us about the role of... Um, of art in repressive societies. And I pitched that idea to Condi Rice, who I was studying with. And she kind of looked at me and said, huh, <laughs> or. <laughs> <laughs> so you studied under Dr. Rice at Stanford? That's right. Uh, so the honest answer to your question is that I got pulled by intellectual interest into a subject that is inherently a public policy subject, that is the role of the military in free and in repressive societies. So that's what you kind of did your PhD research on? 
Uh, so I'm sorry, I'm giving super bad answers to your questions, but but no is the answer. Uh, I ended up, because Condi went into the first Bush administration, so I went and did my PhD with Tom Schelling at Maryland and ended up writing about strategy in the Eisenhower and Kennedy administrations. So a different subject than civil-military relations. But I think for me, the question that has animated most of my academic work is the question of why are some societies so dynamic and why can others not adapt to change? And so uh, in different permutations, part of it has to do with the military and its role in society. Part of it has to do with risk tolerance in the society. Part of it has to do with institutions and norms. So I've been exploring those different avenues along the way. So that brings us kind of to the topic that we wanted to discuss with you today, which is the research that you presented in your book, Warriors and Citizens, American Views of Our Military. So Mm -hmm. just for our listeners, we were wondering if you could share what you think were the key findings of your research that you did at the Hoover Institution and Mm -hmm. what you think are the key policy implications for that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So maybe I should start, though, by saying that the way that Jim and I decided to write the book was that we were having an argument about something about what the American public thinks about the military. And we realized that both of us were generalizing from our personal experience. And as you guys know... Um, the plural of anecdote is not data. And so we realized that we both needed to be better informed on this and decided that we wanted to uh, do a big survey of public attitudes. And then having realized that, we realized nobody had done one at scale since the great triangle study that Peter Fever and Dick Cohn did in 1998. So then we got really curious about exploring how 15 years at war had affected civil military relations in the United States, because we didn't even realize there hadn't been, there's not longitudinal data on most things of civil military relations. So we looked at the 1998 study, tried to decide what are the questions from there that we want to repeat so that people have, you know, a couple of data points on and then explored a whole bunch of questions that we had as well. And when we got the data back, we realized that there was so much in there that uh, the two of us together were gonna be inadequate to the task. So we farmed it out to, Jim and I separately made lists of people each of us learned from on civil military relations. And the people who were on both of our lists are the people who are chapter writers in the book. And here's what we learned. The first big takeaway from the research is that, wow, the American public really, really knows very little about its military. I think this is partly the the legacy of 75 years of an all-volunteer force. It's partly the legacy of having a force very small for the size of our population. It's partly the result of the way our military is increasingly based on large bases separate from the communities that surround them. So that was the first big thing. The second big thing was how broad affection and support is for the American military in a way that is actually quite unusual in free societies, that that there is 
and and we think it's for a couple of reasons. One is that our military has been so resolutely apolitical, not involved in the political fights of the day, and professional about their undertaking. And I think the second reason is that the American public very widely admires that the military is one of the few remaining conveyor belts into the middle class. And the third big thing we learned was just how shallow support for very many of the, of the military policies are, that the American public tends to extrapolate from their experience into the military. So, for example, they think all sorts of things are okay that are not okay in the military, right? That <laughs> you can uh, disobey an order for anything other than it being immoral or illegal. So what it looks like the American public is doing is trying to make the military more and more the sort of guardians or gatekeepers of policy in these areas. So politicians increasingly hide behind the uniforms and the public likes that. They want that to continue, but it is of course terrible for civil military relations. And we begin to see this and we see it a lot more in subsequent data that Jim Golby, Peter Fever and Lindsey Cohn have produced that shows that the American public begins to think of our military the way they think of the Supreme Court. Namely, they treat it like a political undertaking and they support it when it agrees with their preconceived policy views. I think it's really interesting how you bring up this idea of the politicization of the military. As we record this interview, the President and Secretary of Defense have just signed off on something called Operation Faithful Patriot, uh, the deployment of over 5,000 active duty troops to help enforce the administration's border policy. What do you make of these developments, and what do you think they say about the state of civil military affairs in America today? I am so glad that you brought that up, because I think this is a huge civil military test. The fact that the president made no attempt to make a public case for why the military was necessary, that the Secretary of Defense also declined to appear in public and explain what was going on, why active duty military rather than National Guard, who have traditionally served in this role, how it relates to posse comitatus restrictions on the military serving in a law enforcement capacity. None of our political, none of the responsible political office holders have done that yet. And it raises a lot of questions and has the potential to be extraordinarily bad for civil military relations. Putting our military in a role where they have the risk of being in conflict with American citizens, protesters at the border, religious groups trying to create safe haven. I mean, I think there are a lot of ways this could go bad. And I worry about a decision that appears to be highly political in its nature and using the military as props for a divisive social policy. I think it will I think it will politicize our military in a way that's bad for civil military relations. What would you say to Secretary Mattis if you had the opportunity to speak with him about this? Do you think this is evidence that 
some of the academic research that's being done even by you and General Mattis when he was at Stanford isn't really being taken into account when these kinds of policy decisions are made? Uh, so what I would tell the secretary is exactly what I just said to you, that this will be terrible for how the American public views its military. But I'm also extremely confident that Secretary Mattis already knows this. And the problem is that the only person who has the authority to make decisions on the use of the American military is the commander in chief. And so the president can do this if Congress and the courts permit him to do it. And I believe that the cabinet very often, cabinet members very often can advise the president why they think things are good or bad ideas, but the decision rests with the president. In 2013, you co-authored a study with Admiral Gary Roughhead, who was the former chief of naval operations, where you and he advocated for a more streamlined and efficient defense budget. And elsewhere, you've commented on the disparity that exists between Pentagon budget requests and the spending that's authorized by Congress that's more influenced by political considerations. For example, the fact that we have 20% more military bases than the Pentagon actually thinks we need. Do you think that the DOD, the Department of Defense, needs more latitude in regards to managing its money, or does it need more civilian accountability of its budget? I think it needs both of those things. They need more latitude to be able to align money with congressionally approved priorities, and they need more civilian interaction on things. So I, I love the base closures process because it's so arcane and difficult, and yet it ensures that you get a balance of what elected political officials want and what the military says it needs. My experience of civil-military relations at the high policy level is that it is always a negotiation about what political leaders want and what military leaders uh, think they need. So just to take one example, there's never been an American president that gave 100% of our national effort to the war they were fighting, right? Franklin mm -hmm. Roosevelt didn't, Abraham Lincoln didn't, the Continental Congress didn't. Um, that we elect presidents to aggregate our preferences, to figure out how much effort to put towards one thing versus another, how to make the things that we say we want add up. And very often defense experts, especially folks in uniform, would like to try and wring the politics out of policymaking, right? A Goldwater Nichols for the interagency. But, but what that ignores is that we are a government created by people who distrusted government, mm -hmm. right? They don't want it working smooth and efficiency, efficiently. As Jefferson said, great revolution should not be forced on slim majorities. The point in American politics is to have to make your argument and persuade a, a sizable majority of people to agree with it. So... The fact that DOD wants less bases, they're exactly right. It's a huge waste of money. And defense leaders should say that at every single turn to try and shame Congress into doing better. But at the same time, keeping support across 
the political spectrum, across the geography of the country, across the elected representatives in Congress is also hugely important. And so a political process that informs and cajoles and finds suboptimal outcomes that everyone can agree with is actually a better outcome than a perfect decision on base closures. I think it's interesting you bring up the point about you know, this whole process of democracy and the importance of being informed in a democracy. How do you think citizens of our democracy should measure the effectiveness or success of the military, right? If the military should be accountable to elected political leaders and those political leaders are held accountable by informed civilian voters, then those voters should be going out and educating themselves on various aspects of defense policy. So what would you say are, are some adequate measures of effectiveness that the general public can understand in order to gauge the military's performance? I think three. The first is, are they winning the wars we're fighting? And if not, why not? Right? That's a reasonable question for the public to ask and that the military ought to have to answer well. Very often the answer is, our political leaders want 37 impossible things and aren't willing to resource even five of those impossible things. But that forces accountability um, and it creates public, it creates an informed public. So that would be the first. Demand to know why aren't we winning the wars we're fighting? The second thing is it is not true that the Pentagon spends money more efficiently than any other branch of the American government. It's, it's a common misconception where people conflate the affection they have for the military with effective spending, and it's just not true. So the second is, are you guys wasting our money in the defense budget and calling them out every time they do? Because it's, our mo it's money that we are not spending on education, on helping the homeless, on feeding kids in kindergarten. And so we ought always to be extremely cheap and demanding in that regard on the budget. And the third thing I would suggest that the public spend time and invest in is get to know them, right? We as a public tend to treat our military either as comic book heroes, right? Superman, 20 feet tall, never makes a mistake, or as uh, victims, right? People who went in the service because they couldn't get a job in a gas station and it's terrible, they have to go fight the war. Neither of those things are true, and getting to know folks in the service is the best way to shake that, to understand that there are fellow Americans who perhaps have a slightly more developed sense of civic responsibility than the general population, but in every other way, a cross-section in their politics, in their... Another interesting thing I should have said that comes out of the data from Warriors and Citizens is that the views of folks in the military are no different from the views of other Americans if you account for age and income, excuse me, for education and income. So a 50-year-old army colonel has views that are indistinguishable from a 50-year-old college professor. Say both have done graduate work and they have the same level of income. That's the easiest way. There's not a military view on anything. 
And I think it's really important for our broad society of Americans to understand that. And the best way to do it is have some over for dinner. Get to know them. So going back to kind of the cultural gap, the civil military gap, what we were talking about, Americans not knowing much about their military, are there policy solutions to fix some of the problems that arise from that cultural gap? Or is it just a matter of Americans in general becoming more informed? That is such an important question and one I really wrestle with. Um, so the the policy, so civil military experts tend to come up with policy recommendations about what the military needs to do differently to bridge this gap. And I actually think that's unfair. Um, I think that the responsibility for bridging the gap lies on our elected political leaders, that instead of using our military as props, people standing in the background of your pictures, or trying to get them to execute policies. Well, let me just give you what I think is the absolute worst example, the Nadir, President Trump signing the immigration ban in the Medal of Honor Hall at the Pentagon. This is a policy that had nothing to do with the military. The president was doing it there to try and make it look patriotic. Mm -hmm. um, and that's terrible for civil military relations in the U.S. Uh, and so the example that our political leaders set, do they visit with troops? Do they visit with families of the fallen? Do they go to Walter Reed and military hospitals? Do they have average military folks involved in things that are going on. So, so the behavior of senior political leaders matters a lot in shaping public attitudes on this. And I think the majority of responsibility lies with them, although there are also really great things average people can do. And it doesn't have to be, you know, high policy. It can be offered a babysit for the kids of a husband whose wife is deployed. You know, just little things that give you a sense of connection to them because familiarity is the most important bridge to establish for civil military relations. All right, final question. Uh, we have a lot of classmates here who might go into careers that have nothing to do with national security policy, but who nonetheless might be influential in municipal, state, or federal government someday. What do you wish they knew about the military? Oh, I love that question. Um, I wish that they knew that many states and localities create licensing requirements that are prejudicial against folks in military service and their spouses. If you have to be licensed differently to be a nurse in Texas versus Ohio, uh, and you're a veteran or a military spouse, that just makes it much harder for you to move to where opportunity uh, is or to where your spouse is being stationed. So the first thing I would ask folks is think about ways that you can make it easier for people in the military to be regular parts of your community. It's lovely that Americans you know, thank service members that we celebrate on Memorial Day and on Veterans Day. 
that we very often have tributes to our military folks. That's, that's wonderful. But actually what is much more important is the everyday engagement with our military folks. And so making them normal and treating them like they're normal parts of our society is the best thing you can do for civil-military relations. Awesome. I think that's a great place to close. Um, we really want to thank you for your time, Dr. Shockey. We know you're an extremely busy woman doing extremely important work. <laughs> and, um, thank you, yeah, guys. It's been a great honor for to have you on the For the initiative of this and for giving me the opportunity to be a participant in it. Thanks for joining us for this episode featuring Dr. Corey Shockey. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at TYFYS underscore podcast to get the latest updates about the show. And don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spreaker so you'll get our next episode as soon as it's released. Thank You For Your Service is produced by Haz Yano and Alec McMillan. Our creative consultant is Sarah Claudie. Special thanks to Ashwarya Kumar, Anita Joshi, and David Raban. This podcast is a production of University of Chicago Public Policy Podcast and is in no way intended to reflect the official positions of the Department of Defense or any other military entity. I'm Thomas Krasnation. And I'm Nick Pereso. See you next time.